Welcome to Soaring the Sky Glider Pilots Podcast. My name is Chuck, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 43. This episode is brought to you by Arizona Soaring Incorporated, the nation's largest provider of professional glider training. Since 1969, they provided training from initial private through CFI glider and entry level through advanced aerobatics. Open year-round, seven days a week. More information is available at azsoaring.com. On today's podcast, we head to New South Wales, Australia, and chat with glider pilot and instructor Andrew White, flying with Lake Keepit Soaring Club in Lake Keepit, home of the 10th FAI Women's World Gliding Championships. Andrew's love for aviation started at the age of nine when he spent a few days sitting at the airfield watching gliders. He later built many model aircraft and later did some flying as a passenger on an old DC-3 and Fokkers. Then in the Northern Territory, charter flying in remote areas also as a passenger. He would not start his aviation journey as a pilot till the age of 60. Join us now to hear his story on Soaring the Sky. Andrew, so excited to have you here on the podcast today. Welcome to Soaring the Sky. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. So can you give me a little bit of information exactly where you're soaring? Draw that picture for us. Sure. Well, I live in Sydney, um, which is the capital of New South Wales on the east coast of Australia. But I go soaring at a place called Lake Keepit, which is in country New South Wales. There's very little population at Lake Keepit. We're somewhat remote. The nearest towns around us are Tamworth and Gunnedah, and they're about 45-minute drive in different directions. So we have a lot of area to ourselves. And for me, it's about a five- to six-hour drive to get there. Lake Keepit is, as I say, country, and there's a lot of flat land, but fortunately there's some hills around us, which gives us a bit of varied terrain. There's some riverbeds, and so it sort of disturbs the air, which we like. It's a, it's a great thermal area. Now, you're getting into your soaring season about now, I would imagine, right? Yes, definitely. It's the peak of the soaring season. But to be fair, you can do thermal soaring probably all year round. It's certainly quite good in autumn sorry, through, from spring through summer, which is the peak, and well into spring. And you can do some flying in winter, just, just not necessarily every day. Uh, because Australia is a fairly warm climate, we have mostly blue sky days. There's, we actually have a problem with not enough rain. We're in a drought period at the moment, but we get plenty of sunshine and there's a lot of farmland, so there's dark and light patches all over the place, so it's a very thermic area. You will be the home of the Women's Gliding Championship in January, right? That's right. Yeah, it's a, a first, I think, for Australia. I'm not sure of the history, but certainly it's a, it's a big thing for Lake Keepit. Um, there's, I think there's about 45 to 50 competitors coming over from all around the world, all through Europe, and I assume the USA, and they're all coming to Lake Keepit in the first weeks of January. That will be an exciting <laughs> event for sure. We are definitely going to touch back with you and find out how all that went. Yeah, remembering that our seasons are in reverse to yours, so you're heading into winter, we're heading into summer. Yeah, so it would be a great place to uh, be in in my winter. So I could I could soar all year round, just hang out with you all and then come back up here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Absolutely, and you'd be more than welcome. We have 
um, on-site accommodation because it is a remote. Not it's not hugely remote, but it's because it's in the country. And to make it easy, we've got a lot of accommodation on site. There's probably 15 or 20 units, most of them with en-suites, and there's clubhouse with kitchen facilities and washing facilities and all that sort of thing. It's, it's very good. And I would imagine you have people coming in from all over the world. We do. We get people from um, Europe, the UK. We get uh, students coming in from Hong Kong regularly during our winter and spring seasons. They come over to get their certification to help them get into the aviation world. So they come over for glider training. They, they come for a couple of weeks and go back with their solo certificates. Oh, very nice. Um, but we get visitors from all around the world. And mostly, of course, there's mostly the Australian club members that come in, but we, we see people from everywhere. Well, Andrew, I'm excited to hear about your aviation adventure. So if I can ask you, when did your journey begin? Right. Well, probably like many people, through my childhood, I was always interested in aeroplanes, not not necessarily gliders, although I did find myself on one or two occasions sitting at a glider airfield outside of Sydney, watching them fly. And I was probably way too young. I was probably nine or 10 years old. But I you know, sat there fascinated by what was going on. And that probably inspired me to build more model aeroplanes. Then in my teenage years, my family had relatives in the middle of Australia. So we flew out in what in those days were the commercial transports. They were DC-3s and Fokkers that we went out there in. Then when I started working, I found myself in the Northern Territories, which is the top end of Australia the, and sort of the tropical part of Australia. And I had the good fortune to fly with my work around the remote areas and islands and work out there. So I got to sit in the front seat with a pilot on the, you know, the light aircraft we used. But my family life and career kept me busy. And, and basically, I made it to my 60th birthday and as a birthday present, decided to go flying. And uh, we went out to, in fact, the same airfield that I sat at as a child. And my intention was to find a power school and go power flying. But as luck would have it, on the day that I was there, there was a they have a part-time flying club out there. That is, they don't fly every day. But they were operating that day. I took one look at it and thought, that's got to be the go, and went over there and signed up and didn't even hesitate. I just signed up for a, to try and to, to fly gliders, and off I went. However, I'm, the only thing is, as I think is certainly true with me, but probably with other older pilots, if you start late in life, it takes you longer than perhaps a, a younger person. Uh, certainly it was true for me. And so I found that going out there once a week and and then having a gap didn't help my progress. And I was talking about that with the guys out there. And one of them said, you should go for a full-time course somewhere, which they couldn't offer. But uh, I found Lake Keep at Soaring Club out there in, out in New South Wales, made the journey out there, and I've never looked back. Yeah, I've since, in fact, very recently, late this year, I became, I got my instructor rating, and uh, I've become the club secretary. So I'm now doing administration work for them. Oh, well, congratulations, and definitely being an instructor. We, we need lots of instructors, so thank you. Yeah, so I'm freshly minted and just starting on that part of my flying career. What were you flying when you first started flying gliders? What did you get into? Well, at in Sydney, uh, they have a have K21s and a K13. Um, I had a little bit of flying in those. And then out at Lake Keepit, they have a Grub 103, a K21, and a Twin Steer. And I mainly used the Grub and the K21. I like the K21. You say the Grub 103? 
Yes, and I like both of them actually. The grub's very comfortable. It's a bit larger, and I'm fairly tall. I'm six foot and a bit, so it fits nicely. So, in your adventures so far in soaring, if you could take a flight out of your logbook that really kind of strikes you as one you really remember, what would that be? <laughs> what I really remember. I would say that there's actually a, a little sequence of events that really stand out. And that starts with, and it's to do with outlanding and cross-country. You've got to bear in mind that we do a lot of cross-country flying from Lake Keepert. Typical flying days are people going out doing three to 500 kilometre out and back or circuits or triangles. Um, that's, the, that's the norm for the club members, I think. Because of where we are, it's so easy, um, which I'll come back to that. But part of the club training there is to do an outlanding. And the way they work it is you you fly out to a known area. Like you, you as the student don't know, but they've got the area picked and they start talking about what fields and why you would pick them and why you wouldn't pick them. And they have a farm airstrip that they know that we're going to land in. And when you when you finally observe that, you go, oh, that looks good. That's you know, like a little airstrip there. And they go, okay, do it, land there. And then the, the, the tug comes back and picks you up and takes you back home or launches you and you fly back home again. So they're really practicing what you've learned in theory about select field selection and all the things you've got to watch out for. So everyone does that once you know to get going properly at Lake Keepert. I then bothered to I then took it upon myself to engage one of the guys up here who has a Technam Sierra, a guy called Ken Flower. He provides a service where you use the Technam, the power to like an RA, a light sports aircraft, which is very much like a glider to fly, and you fly around lots of different areas looking at the fields from high then come down and see how good your selection was and you basically he says do a circuit do the landing and just before the wheels touch down he powers on and flies away so you get some very very realistic practice at picking a field out of you know from up high seeing what it's like when you get there so i'd done all that in prep but i had said to myself i am not going to outland i'm not going to make that mistake albeit i started to realize that everybody outlands eventually and as luck would have it one day i I was going flying in the club's LS7 and there was somebody else who wanted to use it and I said, yeah, you can use it. And I'll, I, the, the grub was parked on the, the strip and I said, oh, I'll just jump in this while you're using that. And I went out, I got myself into a where I thought I was comfortable. and I was actually quite close to the club, but I got into a huge sink and as luck would have it, I was down low and going nowhere and I wound up saying out loud to myself this is not happening i'm not doing this i don't want to do this but once i made the commitment that i was landing in the field it all came clear i calmed down and it was really quite easy because i'd you know done enough practice beforehand and i said all that to say that i had really not been doing anything great in cross country i had been staying within not necessarily always within one gliding distance from the home airstrip at lake keep it but i was I was pretty close. But the better the day in terms of thermals, the further away I'd go. But I really wasn't being adventurous. And I thought about it for a while. I thought, I've really got to do this. So I set myself a task using an UDI flight computer. I made a 400k triangle and I said, I'm going tomorrow. And as luck would have had it, it was, a blue, it was a great thermal day, but there was blue sky day. And I said, OK, I've got to do it. So what if I land in the field? I've done it before and I took off. And I actually made it around after 100k's flight i was happily pushing further and further 100k's of the flight i was i was pushing further and further away and i was staying high probably between eight and ten thousand feet agl and feeling very confident and i was having a great time and then on the way home i realized i didn't realize at the time but i was getting more and more confident and i was rejecting weak thermals and going further on for the stronger ones and then before i knew it i was down to 1200 feet 
above the ground, picked my field and thinking this is not going to be good. I've gone so far. I was actually within sight of the airport and I was down very low, but this time I managed to find a little thermal and scrape my way over it and get back to the airfield. And in fact, I got back and I'd probably been gone for four hours and I realised that if I put another hour in, I'd make my um, gold flight time. So I set myself a small task when I was flying again and came back after five and a half hours and landed and managed to clean up all my silver requirements and most of my gold. Oh, very nice. Gold in one flight. So that was my long story for a memorable flight, including not being too, um, getting a bit overly confident towards the end. Well, I have to ask, I haven't been to Australia. I would love to be, love to go down there one of these days. But as someone not being there, what type of risk are there if I were to land out as far as, okay, once I land out and I'm, I'm getting out of the cockpit, what do I have to worry about? Is, is there anything I have to worry about around me? Well, there's two aspects to that question. If you're talking about wildlife, I'll come back to that. Um, but if you're talking about the conditions on the ground, um, Australia, where we are, and a lot of Australia is like this, it's a fairly flat country. There are rolling, the ground rolls and there's rivers and so forth. So you do need to pick a field, uh, obviously not near a river or not near a hill, but there's, for, for us at Lake Keep it, it seems to be endless fields and endless outlanding opportunities. And that's why after on that first long flight, I realised I didn't need to worry. I just kept looking down going, any one of those fields would work. And they're, and they're typically big. Of course, the farms are big, the fields are big, so it's easy to find suitable ones. So the actual field selection and the ground, if it's been cropped, it's probably got no rocks or stumps or anything like that. So there's a lot of open ground. So it's generally pretty easy to find places to land. You could put yourself in harm's way by flying over, you know, significantly forested areas, but they're less common than farming land. Finding fields and landing is is easy. We have a, I've heard it said in the club, land in the dirt, you won't get hurt, which is really a, a reference of if it's been ploughed and you can see the, the black soil or the red soil, whichever, wherever you are, it'll be pretty good because the farmers get rid of all the rough stuff. I've gone out and picked up a number of our members who have outlanded, you know, help you go out in the car and we all help one another. And it's always, you know, soft dirt, reasonably, you know, good good landing options. And, and there's lots of outlandings and it's very rare to hear a glider's got any damage. They might, one or two might have scraped a rock or something. But once you're on the ground though, the only thing you've really got to worry about is if you land in a field with cattle, cattle apparently like licking and or rubbing themselves on the glider. So one of the concepts is if you've got two fields, pick the one without a without cattle in it because A, you might they won't know you're coming so they present an obstacle. But B, if you leave the glider there, they might wander over to it and lean on it and break it because they like scratching. As for a lot of, I've been to America often and everyone seems to be preoccupied with Australian snakes and spiders and there's no issue. <laughs> the, honestly, you said just, there's no issue. No issue. No. They, I mean, you can see snakes not in outlands, but just generally, if you walk through the countryside in the bush, you'll see snakes. But they're not that common, and by and large, they hear you come in, they're gone. They're not aggressive. They want to be away from you. So it's not an issue. Cows are the only problem. Oh, yeah, I never would have thought you would have said cows, but interesting. Well. On a sidebar to that, we have a lot of kangaroos at the airport, at our club's airport, and they disappear during the day. But in the late afternoon, and people still come, are still flying at six, past 6 p.m. at night because there's still thermals. They'll come home at, say, 6 o'clock, and the kangaroos will have come out and settled on the runway to chew grass. So we've got a, we've got a couple of quad bikes to chase them away with. But they're not aggressive either. No, no. They're, the ones around the club you can walk reasonably close to before they hop away but they're they're not an aggressive animal they will just jump away 
But the problem with them sitting on the runway, of course, is they don't know you're coming. They probably wouldn't do a whole lot of good for your, for your wing if you hit one. No. So the types of soaring you do, especially in that area of Australia, you have some like rolling hills, but I would presume yeah. you don't really have any ridge left. Um, we've got the small hills and some mountain ranges nearby. And so they, they the small hills, of course, and, and the riverbeds and so forth induce turbulence on the ground, which is really great for setting off thermals. Uh, and the hills do provide, and we, we quite often get, we've got a pretty constant breeze coming across. Australia tends to get west to east wind flow most days, not always, but it's, it's generally a consistent breeze. And that does come over the hills and it does give a bit of lift on one side and sink on the other, which is what caught me out. Um, the hills, some some of the hills to, off to the, I think to the east, they do get ridge and some convergence occurring there because of the, it reshapes the wind and gets different directions coming in. But I'm not that, I'm still relatively new to the area, so I haven't really sussed all that out. Uh, but I believe it's there to be used. People talk about it often enough in our club meetings each morning. You have club meeting each morning? Yeah, we have every mo- thermals tend to, the thermals tend to start at 10 o'clock in the morning and go through till in summer, six or seven o'clock at night. And so at nine o'clock each day, there's a, a meeting in the uh, briefing room where we, we've got a big projector and we run up um, all the weather reports. We use a, some software um, called SkySight that has predictions for the thermal heights and, and directions and so forth. And you can plot out courses for the day. So we look at what the conditions are like and what the cloud base is likely to be. And, and people make their decisions on what sort of a cross-country flight they want to do. That sounds like a great idea for the clubs that maybe aren't doing that yet. I mean, having the meeting and going over all the weather conditions and the thermal conditions for the day, that's a great yeah. idea. Yeah, so it's yeah, 9 o'clock every Monday to Friday and 9.30 on the weekends. And, and in fact, the other thing at that time, if we've got a bit of time up, actually, that normally lasts about half an hour. And we will try and encourage one of the more experienced club men- members to give a talk every now and then on you know, finding thermals or so, you know, which way to fly and how and how to fly faster or whatever. It's interesting. The club puts on what we call mini GPs about four times a year. The deal is any of the club members can join up into it. And so we get you know, 30, and it depends on the time of the, the year, I guess, but there can be 20 to 40 gliders um, lined up and a couple of tugs taking off. And they all form up and they. what happens is the person that's running the, the mini GP sets the course for the day, and typically they're aiming for 300 plus kilometre triangle or a out and back or a complex pattern depending on the wind directions. And then everybody gets gets going. They have a, a start line. Everyone assembles and they head off. And then based on handicaps, the best, um, you know, to, to, to handicaps to adjust for the different quality of the aircraft and so forth. And it's all pretty low key. It's mostly, it's not, partic- it's, it is a competition within the club but it's more about having fun and then the winner of the day gets the prestigious uh, club coffee cup to take home oh Um, nice i like that it sounds like a relaxed kind of way to get into some competitions or to kind of see how the competitions go yes it is it's every time there's a and there's the briefings each day and the briefing typically revolves around being safe and, and and you know and the two difficult points are the start and the end and so um, just stressing the need to be safe and aware of one another and so forth. Yeah, and otherwise have fun. Speaking of being safe, do you have any advice 
how to be a better and safer pilot so far, what you've learned in soaring? Yeah. So basically, I would say set personal standards and live by them. So if you have checklists, do them. If you set your own standards and apply them to yourself, one that comes to my mind, which is easy, is that I ask myself each day, are the conditions okay? Is the glider okay? And am I okay? And if, you know, and probably really getting down to am I okay if I'm tired or, you know, should I be setting a long flight when I'm only, when I'm feeling tired or something like that? Um, so that's that's a biggie. You probably gathered from my previous comments, do outlanding practice. It'll happen one day. While I resisted my first one, once I said, okay, I'm doing this, to, once I said it to myself, I was I was calm and focused and it was felt easy. I actually landed and thought that was a good, that was that worked out better than most landings. Um, moving on from there, I'd say talk and listen to other more experienced pilots. They've done and seen a lot and you'll, you'll learn from them. And to that extent, if you can share, do a dual flight with them. You'll pick up a lot just by observing and talking to them. Keep current, fly often. Probably that's oh, actually having, we've, we've got a club environment, as I alluded to before. So and I'm coming back to a, a point that this is about how to be safer and better. If I look at our club environment, you probably need to appreciate that there's, there's accommodation. There's, so people come up for a lengthy period of time. So on site, we've got probably 50 plus gliders, accommodation for people. We've even got our own repair facility with a, a guy called Keep It Glider Tech, a guy called Grant Nelson, repairs gliders for the club and other people around New South Wales. So we've got quite a good facility there. So that describes that there's a good social environment there. And in doing that, personally, I've actually been chatting to people and they've, one of the guys said to me, always have a purpose. I, I found myself flying around, not randomly, but with no real clear objective. I'd say, oh, that looks good. I'll go over there. Oh, that looks good. I'll go over there. You know, I'll see how high I can go. I'll see how fast I can go, whatever. And he said, always have a purpose. And it's true to say that once you've got a task or an objective of landing more precisely or flying higher or flying faster or doing a circuit, it actually you naturally improve yourself. And so he always said, have a purpose. And, and if you're not sure, do a circ- do a course you've done before, but this time do it faster. So push yourself to fly faster across country, which will mean you're more focused on thermals and managing your speed energy relationship. So that's a pretty good one too. And in the end, you become a better pilot and that implies you become a safer pilot, in my view at least. And on a personal note, I found myself in a very rough day and I, you know, and I was, have, it was fine flying, but I realized in the thermals, there's a lot of wind activity and I was being pushed around in the club's LS7 that day. And I thought, well, what would happen if I got into a really unusual attitude? And so my comment would be, and I did, I actually went and did some aerobatics or what was actually called unusual attitude training. So I do that. And it's not hard, actually. It was quite fun. And my motivation was, so if I do get totally messed up i won't be too shocked and i might have a better reaction to it and get out of it safely and that was a that was a personal goal and and the last thing this year i did power training so i actually went and got solo in a light sport aircraft with that same guy that did outlanding practice ken flower he taught me a lot he was a he is a glider pilot and a power pilot i learned from that that i needed to improve my radio work I put more effort into being seen and heard around power aircraft and appreciate how power aircraft do their circuits and fly in a different pattern and style to gliders. And so I'm better at working with traffic. So it had a, it had a good effect on my gliding and it was a lot of fun while I was doing it. And of course, like you said, it contributes to safety too, hearing who's yeah. around, letting them know you're there. Correct. Yeah. I think it had a, what, a, a positive safety effect. What types of 
Are you just doing arrow toe? Or are you doing winch launches? What all do you have there at the club? Okay, we have both. We have a winch, but we mostly do arrow toes. We've got two tugs, a Pawnee and a Cool Air, um, and we're looking at a third tug at the moment. Very cool. I haven't done any of the winch launching, but I'm definitely uh, looking forward to doing that in the future too. Yeah. I hear it's very exhilarating your first time doing a winch launch. <laughs> I describe it as the poor man's rocket ride. <laughs> nice. It was, a, it was from the ground to 1,500 feet or whatever it was in. It seemed like about two or three seconds. I realized it was probably 20 seconds or so. I don't know. I didn't particularly time it, but it's it, like my first one, I thought it was over in before it started and it was only until about five or six before i realized that there was about 20 or 30 seconds of, of launch still that's like super fast yeah interesting talking about flight heights listening to some of your podcasts previously i realized that here in australia where or here at lake keep it and and probably broadly in australia we're somewhat um, spoiled at lake keep it the, we've got a club has a, uh, a tenure that's about 50 acres and so we've got quite a lot of airstrip space i think our three main runways are, one's 5,500 feet the other one's 3,000 and the other one's about two and a half thousand and they range between 160 and 500 feet wide so you can actually land in any direction and the formal fields are huge by for, from a glider's point of view and then so that's because it's a glider only it's meant to, well, we take power planes, but it's mainly for gliders. There's no normal commercial traffic, traffic coming in. So we're spoilt in the way we have our own airspace. And it's fairly common to have 10,000 foot AGL thermal days. A couple of weeks ago I was there, they were running 15,000 foot, which is above the norm, but 10,000's normal. And I think if someone was saying it's a 4,000 foot day, everyone would be sitting around going, hmm. It's a bit ordinary. I don't think I'll bother or whatever. You know, they, people will go flying, but we're, we're kind, I'm really getting back to the fact that we're spoiled. Listening to some of the podcasts, I realised that some of the places out there in the world, uh, you know, they, they would be seeing 5,000-foot days as being particularly special. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I talked about it on a previous episode of the podcast. When I did my flight, the best one I've had so far as far as altitude, and it was 8,700 feet, and I was ecstatic. I mean, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Because, you know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's it's pretty it's pretty good for this area. Yeah, well, as I say, I didn't realize that we were so spoiled. The only inkling I had of that was when I was very early in my student days, in other words, before solo, I was with my instructor, and he was a young guy from Lasham in the U.K., come over to spend the season with us and you know and train so he was obviously wanting to fly himself but he also paid his way by doing some training or instructing i should say and when we that day passed through 10,000 foot agl in a thermal bear in mind the club's airports are about a thousand foot so that was a pretty good climb he actually said oh that's a record for me and i i'm sorry i said i that's a record for me and he said it was for him which surprised me and i said well so what, what have you been before this, thinking it must have been close? And he said, oh, I think it was about 4,500 feet back in the UK. So that was my first uh, twinkling of the idea that we were doing it pretty well here. <laughs> right. You can pretty much fly year-round. Yeah. I've certainly been up there in the winter months, and there's you know, there are days when you can go flying. It's not a particularly we, – we, we have a, a couple of weeks where we – don't shut down because it's a 365-day operation there, so you could fly every day of the year. But one or two of the weeks we have a maintenance week where club members come and do maintenance on the fleet. You know, so we 
uh, do the annual inspections, pull them apart, polish them, you know, fix things and so forth. Um, then we have working bees where we might you know, do some work around the club because we're always building stuff or adding bits and pieces. Like, um, you know, we've got a little, we call them the shade sheds at each end of the runway. This year we put in an FM radio broadcast of our, of our radio frequency so people in cars can listen to what's going on up in the air. Previously, the guys have built a simulator, oh, just quite a few years ago, they've got a simulator um, where it's actually a room with surround, uh, like panorama screens up on the walls with video projectors everywhere. So it's quite realistic. And you sit inside, a, you actually sit in a cut down, retired glider hull with all the controls um, and do the, um, you know, turn the lights off, turn all the videos on and and run the uh, simulator so there's all that sort of stuff needs to get worked on so there are periods of the time when there's not in winter typically where there's not a lot of flying because they're working on that sort of stuff that's a great idea i like that idea for the simulator yeah it's a good way it's actually i've used it in in my very limited instructing you know if i had a pilot with an issue i said let's go into the sim and practice that you know, see if you can get that worked out because um while it's, it's very realistic, in fact, you've got to sit down. There's seats in there. If you want to watch, you've got to sit down because you wind up falling over just standing there watching. It gets a bit, you know, plays with your um, balance system. Um, right. But it's using, um, 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 was it XESaw? No, sorry, Condor. Okay. Sorry, my apologies. So oh, my play Condor. Oh, Condor. Yep. Um, so it's common software set up. And, and I should say they've someone's bothered to put all the Lake Keeper scenery in there. So they've built a scenery pack for our club and all the mountains around there. So if you actually wanted to fly Lake Keep It, I think if you look through Condor, you could probably find us. It should be under Lake Keep It? Yeah, it should be, yeah. Um, okay. I'll but the point being, I think as you're probably aware, if you've ever used Condor, it's actually a little bit more sensitive than flying in a real glider. So if you can get them working the controls properly in the sim, then they'll probably do all right in the glider. Yeah, it is very helpful. What are you flying right now as far as the glider? Oh, I've worked my way up through the club fleet. fleet. So for training, I was in the, the Grob 103 and the K21. Then I moved into, uh, the club has two PW5s, um, which are a delight to fly. I, I, mean, I love them. In fact, even now I think of them very fondly because they're so light and easy to fly, albeit they're not great at cross-country because they're very light, so they don't have uh, a lot of uh, interwind penetration. So if you get way downwind you so it's a hard it's hard work getting upwind in other words um i then i moved on to the ls7 which was is a lot of fun and i actually i really like flying that uh, but currently i've been using the they've got a discus 2b which is really good for cross-country flying um you know it's a nice slippery efficient aircraft and and every now and then i do some cross-country training with the cross-country instructor we've got here in the club's um Duo Discus. That's a big machine. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Yeah, a nice fleet for sure. Yeah, and then there's the club members. Um, they've got quite a few guys here, and you can. And there's quite a lot of um, dual seat club member gliders. Uh, I was I've been doing a bit of flying with one of the club members in his Arcus, which is a lot of fun. Do you have quite a few club members there in your club? Um, I wouldn't quote me exactly, but somewhere around 100. There might be 120 club members, but you know, some of them are now life members, a bit older, and you know they're uh, not flying that much. But yeah, there's quite a few. I don't know what other club memberships look like, but hundreds, uh, you know, a round number to work on. I think that's a strong club from what I've the people I've talked to around the world so far. And yeah, it sounds like you guys have a good strong club. 
Yeah, we, we kind of need it because, um, you know, there's a big airfield to look after. Um, we've got quite a few buildings that we've put up. We've, you know, we've built all this accommodation and um, and we've got quite a few gliders and, and the tugs and so forth. So you need the members to fly. You need a lot of people flying to keep the, the fees coming in to, to keep the thing operational. But it's pretty spectacular. I'm, I'm, I the older I, or the more I glide, the more I realise I'm being pretty spoilt at the moment in the conditions and the, and the number of gliders I get to choose from. Yeah, that sounds like a wonderful place to soar. If somebody wants to go to Lake Keep It and maybe fly for a couple of days, do you have like a guest package or how would that work? Yeah, there's a bunch of different options. And to be perfectly honest, I'd, to get the exact details, I have to speak to the membership slash booking manager um, who you spoke to originally, Patricia. But they do have, we've, for beginners, we've got like, for juniors, there's a junior rate, you know, to encourage juniors to start the sport. Uh, for, for ab initio type people, there's a like a discounted 10 flight pack, um, and um, then there's and you can also get bulk flying rates, um, which I do, uh, and which sort of cover the first 20 to 30 hours of flying. Uh, unfortunately, I'm still struggling to remember all the numbers because that's not my area of operations. But there are lots of options, so if they there's want to come down options, and fly. Yeah. Yeah, Look, sure. if if someone. Um, I think most people in New South Wales would know where Lake Keeper is and know the conditions. But for overseas people, um, Australia is hot and summer can be very hot. So spring and autumn are a bit cooler and there's still very good thermals. So from basically August through to May, oh no, sorry, say April is probably really good. Summertime around Christmas is great, fantastic, but it's also hot. And if you're not used to it, it can be a bit daunting. I say we get up high and stay high because once you're at 8,000 feet above ground uh, and, and beyond that, it uh, tends to be nice and cool. It's very, it's quite pleasant. I've, I can look at some of my flight traces and I realise that I flew all day between eight and 10,000 feet because I didn't want to go low and get warm. Yeah, Mother Nature's air conditioner, right? Correct, yeah. Andrew, thank you for joining us on Soaring the Sky today. I greatly appreciate it. It's, it's been uh, pretty exciting hearing from Australia. I've been wanting to talk to you guys for a while, so... This has been very cool and definitely going to check back with you and see how the FAI Women's World Gliding Championship, how that yeah. went. Look, it's, it's been my pleasure. Um, I've enjoyed your podcasts. And in fact, it's inspired me to get to the USA and go to some of the places I've heard of and try gliding there um, because they sound, particularly the mountains, that looked really spectacular. So, or, I mean, sounded really spectacular. And then you've driven me on to look at some of the videos. So I want to get over there oh, and glide. Great. Yes, there are some very cool places to soar here. And even out west, you're speaking of elevation, getting in those higher elevations where, or the higher altitudes when you take a flight. But out in the higher elevations out west, they do get up there in some, some pretty strong thermals. Of course, it's hotter there, too. But some great places to fly here in the mid-Atlantic, too, where I am. Some beautiful places to fly, some ridge soaring and some wave soaring and thermals. We were blessed to have all three of those. But, yeah, it would be great to have you here. Thank you. And thank you for joining me here for another great guest here on Soaring the Sky. And thank you for all your emails and positive feedback. Because of you, the podcast soaring community is definitely growing. We now have listeners in over 70 countries and in every state here in the U.S. Please continue to tell your friends at your local glider port. And if you're not a pilot, but you want to start flying gliders, check out the SSA.org. And you can find out where your local glider port is where you can start your soaring journey. 
Also, I would like to mention a very important event. That is the SSA Soaring Convention to be held this year in Little Rock, Arkansas. Now that's going to be three days of soaring excitement. It's all soaring. It is coming in February. That's going to be the 20th through the 22nd. If you want to help us out here and help us grow on the podcast, another way you can help is check out our social media. And Michelle has some more info on that. Michelle? On Facebook, it's Soaring the Sky Podcast. On Instagram, it's the same. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Or you can send us a note on the website. That's soaringthesky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky.